0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, the podcast where we hear from innovators, pioneers, and thought leaders in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop in iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin.
1: This episode is brought to you by Bitwise. Last year, Bitwise created the world's first cryptocurrency index fund, the Bitwise Hold 10 which holds the top 10 cryptocurrencies and rebalances monthly. The fund has several hundred LPs and is currently accepting accredited investors. To learn more and invest in the Bitwise Cryptocurrency Index Fund, visit www.bitwiseinvestments.com unchained. Today's episode is brought to you by KeepKey, the easy, safe, and simple way to protect your
2: Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and many other digital assets. There's no time like the present to protect yourself from hacking Hackers, malware, and viruses. Rest easy knowing that your digital assets are protected. Visit KeepKey.com to order your secure hardware wallet today.
0: Unchained is sponsored by Appreciate. Appreciate is building the most valuable relationships on earth. In each episode of Unchained, Appreciate recognizes an individual or group in crypto for an achievement. Who in crypto will be recognized today? Stay tuned to find out. Today's guest is Aya Miyaguchi, Executive Director of the Ethereum Foundation. Welcome, Aya.
3: Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me about your background and how you got into crypto. Sure. My background, actually my first professional career, started as a high school teacher in Japan. And um my mission was to tell my students the importance of going outside of the country once in their life. And then um I also... I myself as a teacher, I thought it was very wrong that teachers did not go out there to see the world or did not try other um professional experiences. So I just quit my job and then came to the U.S. And then I was pursuing actually, oh, I wanted to first, I wanted to get a job. And then for that, I needed to go to a graduate school. And then while I was studying, I heard about Bitcoin first around. In 2011, and that was my first encounter with anything about blockchain. And it took me a while to understand is, um, what Bitcoin was as there were no any good materials to learn for non-technical people like me. And however, after I learned about the major benefits of Bitcoin, I thought it'd be very helpful for financial inclusion and social impact. And then, yeah, my focus when I was working on my MBA was sustainable business. And I personally was specifically interested in microfinance to make women financially independent in developing countries. And I thought Bitcoin would be very helpful for that. Although now Ethereum can do a lot more, but back then it was Bitcoin that I first originally interested in. And then... Um, in early 2013, I got an opportunity to join Kraken Exchange when Kraken just started hiring. And um, there were only a few people in the team back then, and we did not even have an office. And um, yeah, so, but the team was based in San Francisco, and I was fortunate to have amazing experiences surrounded by the people who started the crypto industry. That's how. I got into the space first. And what did you do at Kraken exactly? So, I was I was managing uh Kraken's Japan uh operations originally and then I became a uh, managing director for Kraken Japan after I started the an entity and then built the team there. But before even doing that, um right after I started doing things in Japan, um, Mangox collapse. Um, they just happened to be in Japan and then there, there wasn't any, any market there back in 2014, early 2014 it was. And then more than 90% of people, users of Mangox were outside of Japan. So the whole country was kind of shocked by hearing first, like hearing the, name bitcoin originally because people did not know anything about it and then also um how it affected a lot of people and then lost a lot of money and then so it all started with very negative image there in japan and so i thought i needed to do something before even starting a business there i reached out to The government group who was in charge of doing some research on Bitcoin and also potentially regulate the space. But uh, since they had no knowledge about the technology, I reached out to them and asked, um, well, first explained who I was and that that, that I had experience in the space, but also I also had experience like working with the self-regulatory organization Back then, like in the US, there was a uh, group called Data, Digital Asset Transfer Authority, which was founded by, uh, early industry people or CEO of, CEOs of like from, from startup, Bitcoin startup. Yeah. So I reached out to them and then I asked if they needed help, I can help. And then they said, uh, can you just meet with us right away? And so that was the beginning of the conversation where the government actually decided not to regulate the space back then. And then, which I thought was a smart idea because the market was too small. But also they instead they asked us to found, create a self regulatory organization in Japan. Um, So I founded that with some other members. But Kraken was the only experienced company there. So I ended up um, heavily um, being involved in a lot of regulatory conversations, which led to the existing regulations now that started in um, 2017.
0: And is that digital currency trade organization, the Japan Authority of Digital Asset? Yes. Okay. And So what were those conversations like? I mean, they happened over a number of years, it looks like. And if in the beginning you were advocating not to issue regulations in the beginning, how did the regulations last year come about? And why did you think that that, if you thought that was the right time, why did you think that was the right time?
3: Yeah. Um, so originally uh like I said, there was no market, people did not know anything about technology, and then it just started with the Mtogs, unfortunate case. Um, so and the media was talking only negative about um negative stories. And then before regulating, like it's just like including the regulators, including the people at the government, including people who were writing about the story, they needed to know learn about the technology and what that can do so in the beginning it was it was a smart idea not to regulate the space but then like we kind of formed this group and then created this self-regulatory ser- criteria for uh, mainly exchanges um like like clacking and what they need to do for kyc or security and then all the list of things that was mostly based on what we were doing in the U.S., but uh, uh, tried to make a little bit more flexible, and that was in 2014. And then after that, gradually uh, the country recovered, was recovering from the shock from Gox, and then market started to grow with other players, and then the industry, as industry, were growing. I think there were other issues such as uh financial institutions were not comfortable enough to work with crypto companies um, because they, it wasn't regulated. And, but there were a lot of opportunities, a lot of interest there that uh, big companies wanted to work with the technology in some way. And... And then around that time, the regulators decided to regulate the space, but they were still talking to the industry group. What would be the best way? Not that they listened to all the requests that we made, but uh, at least um, we provided information. They listened. And then it was around the time that, um, the, if without the regulations, um, the space would miss a lot of opportunities. And then, and then so that the original draft was created the end of 2016. And then it went effect in 2017 in April.
0: So I only really know those regulations in broad strokes. Like I know that Bitcoin was named a legal currency. I know that later the some of the crypto exchanges were licensed. Can you just draw out for me what those regulations were and what the significance was and what you thought were the pros and cons of the different regulations?
3: Sure. So that that regulation um, specifically that was created and out started last year, year in 2017 was for exchanges and, um, and the um, payment processors. And then the mainly that was for, uh, to provide again, the list of things that require to exchanges so that, um, there won't be any money, mon- uh, money laundering or security hacking or the similar thing that the U S was doing. And then mainly the list of things that is required to get the license. Well, what we call it in English, it's license. It was supposed, it wasn't supposed to be a license. They called it as a registration, but it turned out to be a little more difficult, uh, than anyone thought would be to finish the registration because most of the criteria or most of the requirements were still created based on um, the conventional financial regulations that were um, that existed before.
0: Okay. And to go back to what you were saying earlier about Mt. Mm-hmm. Cox, I know that Kraken was appointed to help Mt. Cox investigate what happened to the lost or stolen bitcoins and also to help them pay back the creditors. What was Kraken able to accomplish with that role?
3: Uh, So, yes, first of all, um, it was kind of like requested by the founder of Kraken, especially because he cared about the community, right, more than even just the business out of this. But um so and then I since it happened in Japan, I reached out to the trustee uh Magog's bankruptcy proceeding case and then explained uh who we are and then uh what the technology can do for to make the I mean it, because it happened because of the this because of Bitcoin, but at the same time it didn't really happen because of the technology of Bitcoin. It's it's it could have happened with anything and so i i explained that but also explained what we could do how we could help them because they had no idea what to do with this case especially because a huge amount of asset a huge amount of lost asset were with bitcoin and then and then um so clock and was able to sign on the agreement um, to be a supporting company of this bankruptcy proceeding case. And then they requested us to support them, help um, any technical questions they might have, but also especially investigating uh, the lost Bitcoin uh, where it went. And then it was impossible for them to do everything on their own, even if they hire some consulting technology company. And so they knew that they needed some expert from the industry. So we were there to kind of support their work, not just us doing everything. It's more like we are a supporter to um, instruct them, like how to do the investigation. and And also it was decided for the first time in the industry to do the payout with Bitcoin, and originally it was supposed to be also beneficial for Clacken, but um, because of a lot of complexity and then some existing lawsuits, which hasn't happened yet, unfortunately, and it's still ongoing. And then during that time, things have changed, and a lot of things have happened. So it Clacken didn't do it for for the Business benefit only although it did have a lot of like um you know reputation positive reputation
0: impact you mean helping Kraken or hurting the Bitcoin community or what do you mean by that uh
3: both of, uh, both of them I mean like a, a Kraken tried to help the community try to save the creators who were the victim of um, the Mongox, which was which was also part of the industry so it was sort of like a community effort that Klagen tried to do.
0: Okay. I wanted to go back to something you said, which was, you said something about how the payment or the payout was supposed to be in Bitcoin. But mm-hmm. I think, I, I don't know what you're referring to, Because I think the big controversy is that they're actually paying back their creditors in dollars and not refunding them the amount that they had lost in Bitcoins. So wh- what do you mean by that?
3: Oh no! So originally it was decided that way that the um, Bitcoin um, was, if you think about the cost of wiring money to the, um, all over the world, because ni- more than ninety percent of users were outside of Japan, but the bankruptcy case was in Japan, so the asset was in Japan, and then if you were to send do the payout using fiat currency by using regular bank wires. And then back then, that the cost of doing that was too much, considering the whole amount of asset that was there. And then after that, um, that Bitcoin price pl- went really high, and the trustees started to worry if they didn't sell Bitcoin, they might get blamed. And yeah, or something like that. And Wait, blamed for what? Blamed for not making more asset, but... But um, there are a lot of like other little things that are, they were, um, yeah, that is very controversial. I wasn't really involved in that, this part of discussion. Okay.
0: So at some point, he, he, the, uh, we're talking about the trustee, uh, Nobuyaki, Kobayashi is his name. He changed his mind and decided to reimburse
3: them in dollars. Is that what happened? It's more like uh, if they sell, bitcoin they can make huge amount of money and um and then that was yeah that was what they thought yeah i think the price of bitcoin affected their. again like i wasn't really involved in this discussion but okay
0: yeah Yeah. to me it doesn't make any sense (laughs) just i mean i know that's not well, that wasn't your decision, but mm. it's a little bit like if you had bitcoins, you would want the bitcoins back, like especially because the price is so volatile. But anyway, um, let's move on to discuss yeah. the Ethereum Foundation. What mm-hmm. is the Ethereum Foundation, and what is its mission, and what does the foundation do? Yes,
3: yeah, so the Ethereum Foundation is is a foundation, and then other organizations to support the development and research of the Ethereum technology, Ethereum. Um, that also support the community uh, activities and effort, which also support the development research uh, of Ethereum, and and the mission is to um, basically make this make Ethereum as uh, best as possible in by supporting community by facilitating research and development effort.
0: And what do you do in your role as executive director?
3: So that's, um, I just joined the foundation officially since February this year. And I, yes, I, so I basically coordinate and, um, and organize that the foundation's activities within like internally, but also the foundation has even bigger role working with the community members. And so doing education, doing grants. And and then those are the things that are uh main focuses of our activities and then making communication better. So there are a couple of things that we want to do better by hearing what people thought about the foundation's activities before, but also I personally did not know what the Ethereum Foundation was before in detail before joining the foundation. So I want to make it more transparent and clear to the world, what the foundation is, what we are doing, but also how we can work together with the community members with, because Ethereum has a really amazing community, which is really the great thing about Ethereum.
0: And what were those things that you said that the community has asked from the foundation?
3: I think uh, what it wasn't really clear, which we're, are planning to make it uh, more clear but also um, make better at communicating is that um, it wasn't really clear what the foundation's focus was compared to what the community is what other members in the community is is doing basically like why the foundation exists when ethereum technology is there and then other community members are building other stuff and then Some of them are actually working on some solutions that the foundation is working on too. So why, why we are here? What is the, what is, you know, what, what are the main focuses of the foundation? So that is uh, one of the requests is to make it more transparent and then communicate that better.
0: Yeah. And how do you plan to do that? Because I do know, and this might be something that you're only obliquely referring to, but I know that the former executive director, Ming Chan, was widely criticized and complained about in the Ethereum community for being controlling, for not being communicative, for not building on infrastructure for the organization. So how do you plan to manage the foundation and prevent these issues from coming up again?
3: Yeah. So, well, I, I do think she did a lot of, uh, um, important things too, uh, just to make it clear, because there are a lot of, uh, difficulties and then challenges that the Ethereum had before I joined. But, but it is too, since the industry is growing and in, in the Ethereum community is growing, the, the demand is higher. So the foundation has to grow in a way that, um, I don't think that necessarily means the foundation has to become bigger in terms like the the number of people we have in the team or it's more about this is very, what I think is great about the community and also it's a challenge, it's very decentralized and in order to solve one problem or one one challenge, like we work together with the community, like it's not the foundation to control everything or solve everything in-house. Uh, and that has to stay that way because the technology itself is also decentralized. And in order to do that, instead of us trying to do everything in the house, we are already, we have been um, working with the community members. And then it is, it make everything as a community effort. We don't really care who does what job, but we do care uh, at the end, uh, how much easier we can in, improve as a whole so we want to make everything as a community effort and then the foundation is a facilitator but also an, an, a coordinator we're not the manager or we're not controlling anything so that kind of message we have to send and then in order to do that uh, we are trying to get more grants and then work on more educational effort and then and then also again, like making the communication better.
0: And when you talk about the community, who exactly are you talking about? Like, who are the people that you end up talking to, or or the other foundation members end up talking to?
3: It's basically anyone who is uh, doing anything with Ethereum. That's kind of a simple way to say. Either it's individuals or um, an organization. And an organization like EEA or other community members, it can be individual who is just contributing to the Ethereum technology because it's open source. And then some of them just voluntarily started contributing to the technology. And then, but we can see that because it's open. And if they are contributing a lot, like we try to, we should acknowledge them more or better and then that's what we want to do by giving grants and whether it's an individual or it's an organization or it's team or company and and yeah so whoever that is that is part of the community and also any decision maker making like ideally we want to talk to as many groups as possible
0: Okay and earlier when you reference EEA just for people who don't know that's the Ethereum Enterprise Alliance which is a whole bunch of big multinationals around the world that are building things on the Ethereum source code I I think though that a lot of them are using it for private blockchain projects am I right Yes okay Um, So something that I wanted to ask you was about some big questions that the Ethereum community has been mulling recently. One is whether or not to unfreeze some funds that were accidentally locked up. This Mm -hmm. has generated some really passionate debate. There was, I, I, I should have looked up the dollar amount, but a huge amount of Ether, I think, got locked up by some bug in a smart contract where somebody accidentally (laughs) hit what is sort of like a kill button in a way that locked up these funds. Um, Another one that came about sort of with an April Fool's joke that Vitalik posted online was a blog post where he raised the question of whether or not to cap the supply of ether or to inflate the money supply in perpetuity. Although it's generated some serious discussion, so how do these kinds of questions get decided, and what role does the Ethereum Foundation play
3: in making those decisions? So again, like I think um I, I'm not supposed to make a really public comment on uh, for something like this because I'm like other developers. Like if I do it, it makes it look like I'm representing the foundation, but as as the foundation. I think, like I said, it's the community who should uh, decide on important decisions. And then, yes, Vitalik sometimes kind of proposes some idea, but he's not really forcing that to be picked by the community. But he's suggesting the idea with his is, is like as an individual, and he doesn't mean to control. uh the, Although he he does have influence of people. Uh, try to know what his intention is, but his intention is never to control the decision making. And, and then, uh, yeah, like all the governance discussions, um, that which I think it's still very, like it's, it's very, it's, it's discussed in an open way. And then we also had this discussion at uh, a big event in Paris, ECC in, in, in a month ago. And then that was, uh, there was, uh, for the community and an opportunity for the community to discuss to discuss what are, are the challenges that we have, uh, with the current governance structure and what can be, what should we discuss? And then also what can be improved? Uh, it wasn't really like it, there wasn't really a, good conclusion to that because it's not an easy answer. To, there is not an easy answer for that. But, but the foundation can facilitate these discussions. But at the same time, the foundation should never be the one to make the decision.
0: We're going to keep discussing this issue and other issues around the Ethereum Foundation. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsors.
2: Cryptocurrency is vibrant and exciting, but it's not without its share of bad actors. Exchanges and personal accounts can get hacked. Computers can be infected with malware. Left unprotected, your digital wealth is up for grabs. Don't let yourself be a victim. KeepKey is the safest and simplest way to protect your Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin, and other tokenized assets. This hardware wallet is a separate device that you control. Brought to you by the pioneering team at ShapeShift, KeepKey works with the wallet software on your computer to manage your private keys and transactions. Your device is PIN protected which renders it useless even if it falls into the wrong hands. Its large display lets you carefully view and approve every transaction. And if your Keep Key is ever lost or stolen, you can safely recover your device without compromising its private keys. The bottom line? You'll sleep easier knowing that your digital wealth is safe and secure. Visit
1: KeepKey.com to order yours today. Works on PC, Mac, Linux, and Android. Bitwise is the creator of the world's first cryptocurrency index fund, the Bitwise Hold 10. The fund holds the top 10 cryptocurrencies by five year diluted market cap, rebalances monthly, and takes care of secure storage and taxes. It's an easy, secure way for long term investors to get diversified exposure. Bitwise is backed by Kosla Ventures, General Catalyst, Blockchain Capital, Naval Ravikant, and several others. They're a trusted partner to individual investors, wealth managers, family offices, and large institutions who are navigating the crypto space. The fund has several hundred LPs and is currently accepting accredited investors. To learn more about the Bitwise Cryptocurrency Index Fund or download research, visit www.bitwiseinvestments.com slash unchained.
0: Now it's time to recognize someone in crypto, sponsored by Preciate. Today, Preciate is recognizing Connie Gallippi, founder and executive director of BitGive, for her recent work launching GiveTrack. GiveTrack is an innovative blockchain program providing real-time transparency on charitable project outcomes. Connie deserves kudos for leading the way. Thanks, Connie. Preciate welcomes Unchained listeners to nominate a friend to get props on a future episode of Unchained. Just go to appreciate.org slash recognize. Looking for a new job? Preciate is hiring a senior product lead, iOS developers, and UX designers. If you believe in design thinking, love the idea of building the most valuable relationships on earth, and are located in Dallas or San Francisco, join Preciate. Learn more at Preciate.org slash careers. I'm speaking with Aya Miyaguchi, the executive director of the Ethereum Foundation. So to go back to this topic of what it is that the community wants, how do you decide that? Do you have good ways of measuring which option has more support one way or another amongst token holders? And how do you account for the fact that maybe there might be some, like, let's say, Bitcoin maximalists or people from a competing smart contract platform that try to sway the decisions within the
3: Ethereum community? How How do you account for those things? Again, the foundation doesn't have to decide. I I don't think the foundation has to decide uh which opinion that um, the Ethereum should uh, pick or um, to select as the answer because it's, it's supposed to be the community. And then we need to, I think we need to provide more opportunity for the community to be able to have better communication or better discussions and that it's, it is is it is a technology uh, ethereum is a technology and then also it involves discussion about the technology, but most of the time it's it's uh, it's very human and then uh it it involves some ethic questions and like uh, legal questions and then for that um, it, it's it requires a lot of different experts to. For the discussion itself, but also the foundation is only the facilitator of the discussions, and they, we don't need to pick um, which decision should be used. And so then does the what,
0: final yeah. call come down to Vitalik himself and nobody else? Because some some entity, whether it's a person or a group, needs to make the final decision, right? And to say, okay, discussion's over, we're going to move forward with this action,
3: Oh, the final decision for the, the, uh, the uh, for the decision for how the organization work for the, uh, what the foundation is supposed to do or that should be, of course, discussed internally. But how the technology is used or how the governance should be is not by the foundation or not by the Vitalik either. I mean, he also has his own opinion as an, an individual who contributes a lot to Ethereum, but also, but. Again, like it's, it shouldn't be anyone from the foundation so, or could be like anyone from the foundation also can suggest the idea or be an, an individual who, uh, wants to, who prefers one way or another. But, um, it doesn't like the decisions when you say decisions, anything related to the governance or anything, the decision that you just pointed are not it should not be done by the foundation is what i meant so
0: then who but who does make that final call
3: uh um for final call for what
0: any Which kind one? of decision like about you know whether or not to um unfreeze those frozen funds or whether or not to cap the supply things
3: like that oh well it is it is the community and then it has to that be makes there. the final call be- though yeah the final call, meaning like if the of course there should be a way to find a way to what is the final call of the fund uh, for, of the community, which we can do better about like providing an opportunity to discuss uh, have a discussion between the comu- community, but again, like the final call for that, um, it can be suggested by anyone in the community, and then the community has to come to the consensus.
0: Okay, and do you have a process for for that at the moment?
3: We, uh, I mean, like not we, it's only the foundation, but we are working with the community members. Again, like we had this discussion last month, and then other uh, more discussions are kind of being planned to being planned to happen at the next big event, and so that's like we we're we're trying to figure out what are the best way to. Get there.
0: And I think something that I've been wondering, and I think a lot of people are wondering is, what was the application process and screening process you underwent to be chosen as the executive director?
3: That's a good question. I think I was, um, so after, especially since last year, or a couple of years ago, I started exploring uh, different products in social impact blockchain Um, space. And then I was actually planning to start my own social impact studio. And then, um, so basically I was, um, I, unfortunately I received a lot of offers, but, and then when I decided to pursue the next thing, um, especially towards social impact uh, area, Yes. And I, well, when I decided to leave Clark and then I started exploring that area and then I s- said no to all different offers, but this one was kind of like too important for me because all my, all the ideas that I had or all the product that I was supporting would not, uh, at the end of the day, they would not uh, succeed without him. So it was just offered yeah. to you? <laughs> It was offered to me, yes,
0: and um like you I, didn't even apply for it. they just came to you
3: I, know. I didn't apply for it, but I'm pretty sure they were um talking to other people too other people too I didn't really ask other i mean the process itself because i'm I was the one who joined but yes um i didn't i didn't apply for it, but i was um i was. Asked by, um, yes, people in the community.
0: What was there even an open application process? I
3: don't, well, I don't know. Well, I don't think it was open because I didn't see it. And then you probably didn't see it.
0: Yeah. No, I didn't
3: yeah. see it. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. so for a decentralized project, do you think the process should be done in this
3: fashion? Oh, uh, that's a very question. Um, I, I think it should well it maybe well that's maybe that a maybe question um to ask um yeah but well I think it's a good question and I think it can be could have been uh, of course open and then the community could have decided if if any community members think that's the best way and then um when that is, Proposed at some point, um, and I think it's, it's totally okay to be that way. But at the same time, I think it was, it involved a lot of things that are, um, it's, it's not just community. And then it's about the foundation's organization. And then so they needed someone who had experience, uh, working globally and, uh, long experience in the crypto space and which I, was told, but, um, there wasn't an, an open process. Yes. And then I think it's like, that's a good idea. I, I,
0: yeah. And who, who interviewed you? Who decided who should be the next executive director?
3: I talked to
0: um, a lot of members in the team. Which team? What, like the existing foundation members or? Existing who? foundation members. Yes. Like Ming and Vitalik? I, those were the only two I was aware of.
3: <laughs> yes, that's a, also other good question. No, um, um, it was Vitalik, but also other um, people like researchers and developers in the team.
0: So you mentioned earlier that you are working on the
3: foundation's top priorities. What are those right now? So mainly three focuses, and then one is grants. And which is, uh, which we already talked and uh, giving grants to the community project or, uh, individual who are contributing to these same solutions and together with the foundation or individually. And the second is community development and supporting new regional communities to launch, which like the communities are growing and then A lot of new meetups are happening in the world, and then if they need support, we would happy to support us and speakers, or if they need financial support, like we can discuss, and also working with um, universities for creating educational materials and also facilitate the initiative of education. And also that includes some like regulatory discussions. Sometimes we are asked to give advice to regulators. And the last one is, yes, the research and development that, um, obviously that you, you can see that that the core development and research work that the foundation is taking the initiative, but some of them are actually not just done by the foundation members and then through the community grants and also educational or community development effort, uh, we can facilitate R&D effort in a better way, not, um, not just doing that in house. And,
0: you know, as you can tell, from what you have said, but also from some of my questions, I think there is a big question around how best to govern an open source project. Are there any models of open source governance that you look to for
3: guidance? Not many specifically, but by talking to a lot of people, it's, it's, well, any, any open source project, but also like something like Linux foundation. But I think what we are trying to accomplish is something very new because this is very decentralized. Um, it's not, not just the, the technology is open source. So. We've been discussing the new way of organizing everything, which we just started doing this, like the, the, having a lot of discussions internally, but also um, hiring more people on the operation side, because that was something the foundation didn't have before me joining.
0: And what what were, <laughs> I can't speak, what would
3: those roles be? Well, we don't really set uh like very, very specific titles, but um something like grant uh, grant more more operations members for the grant team and then more operation members for the education team and then because those are very important to work with the community
0: yeah well, how many foundation members are
3: there currently? So it is roughly about 50 developers and then also 15 researchers, if we call it like researchers and developers. And then um, there are really only like a few, less than a few operations people, including myself.
0: Okay. And so is that what the Ethereum Foundation budget is largely going toward right now it's like their salaries but then also these grants that you guys are giving out yes okay so um to go to some of the priorities that you mentioned and also your background because you studied microfinance and we're talking about how you were drawn to blockchain because of its potential for fostering financial inclusion do you have plans now for the ethereum foundation to help promote financial inclusion in some fashion if so what are those plans
3: most of their, um, our, of course, like I will personally, um, support those products, uh, pro, sorry, projects, or yeah, it could be product for sure. Keep doing that. But as, as the, as a foundation, we will focus on the, the core infrastructure development first so that all the applications that are built on top of Ethereum can, uh, perform better um, such as like the scale, scaling issues need to be solved and then and then that's our focus now in in directory that i believe is going to support those financial inc- inclusion products or pro- projects
0: and what are some examples of financial inclusion projects that you think are promising
3: well a lot it, it will it's something like microfinance can be just just to solve the payment part, that's useful. But at the same time with Ethereum, you can use smart, con- smart contract to use the technology for like identifications or, or loan takers uh, background or like, a, like how you actually manage the loan process. You can use smart contract for that. That can actually be very useful. And then other financial inclusion efforts, like, you know, simply just give financial independence by using cryptocurrencies is also another thing. And because cryptocurrencies can do a lot of things more than, like a lot more than fiat currencies. And, but also it is not really controlled by one single country. And which you know, sometimes is a problem when you can trust the country, or you, know, you and you cannot trust the government or the bank, or well, if they don't have the ac- when they don't have the access to banks that even more so.
0: And to go back to regulation, which you mentioned is one of the priorities. I noticed in December, you had tweeted the most important role of a self regulatory body is not just to regulate the space, but also to educate regulators to find the best solution for the long term success of both the industry and the country. No point of having an industry org if they cannot argue with regulators. What regulations right now in which countries do you think are reasonable and work well for the crypto ecosystem and which regulations do you think are not productive?
3: I personally think that the, any, the ones that are not, um, too aggressively making quick decision yet are like so far are the best one or the, the smarter ones. If you, um, if they move too quick or make decisions too quick without really deeply discussing the potential outcomes or potential, because the industry moves very quick. Uh, that this happens in Japan. This happened in Japan too. Like when the regu- regulation was first drafted and it went effective a few months later. And then it, it's, it's just uh it takes a long time for them to even like before, after they decided to regulate and then coming up with the draft and then making it effective. It almost took an, an, a year. Which is a very long time for this space. And then a lot of things have changed. And then they, so they have to, I could see that regulators side were kind of, um, getting pressured with the new things that keep happening in the, in the industry. And then something like ICO and, and, um, was not really part of the discussion when they first drafted that regulation. So, for that, I think it's it's important not to take too too aggressive decision on like they can come up with the regulation but not make not to make it too unflexible so that um they cannot really you know act flexibly later
0: and when you said that ethereum wants to have this role in uh, education as well when it comes to regulators. How do you do that when there's uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 200 countries around the world?
3: How would you uh, have uh, that many conversations going on? <laughs> so so we're not the lobbying organization, so that's not our intention. But sometimes we are asked to give advice from um, the different Different jurisdictions, just because I think it's because we are a nonprofit that doesn't have business incentive, and and then also the foundation does have uh, the history and technical background, so that uh, if they are missing any knowledge about the technology or if they don't, a lot of time that the regulators do not have enough time to actually catch up with everything that's happening in the industry, but also, yeah, like they 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 often look for advice from an expert, but they don't know who to ask. When any expert can have business intensives or money incentive, and as a foundation, since since we are a nonprofit, but also our goal is to maintain that space as healthy as possible, um, so we can just. Provide some advice, and then they can use it or not. But uh, we're happy to give advice. Is our our approach? But we, yeah, like you said, we can really travel to each country to kind of like convince them. Like this is the way that you should do. It's more like uh, when they're we are asked to give advice, we try to do our best.
0: Interesting. I mean, I totally get your point about how they might have a little bit more comfort with a nonprofit, but given how closely the, the foundation is tied to Vitalik and the fact that, obviously, he has a lot of ether himself, um, I don't know if the, the analogy is, like, exactly perfect. Um, but to keep talking about regulation, I wanted to ask also about if there are any new regulatory developments we'll see coming out of Japan, because I think some... People thought that it was pretty forward looking that Japan, you know, made Bitcoin a legal currency and that it had these licensed exchanges. But are there any other new regulations in the works?
3: The only thing I'm aware, although I, I talk to them very often, um, not, but they don't really, I don't think they told me everything that they have in their mind, but, um, they have been, um, talking or um, yeah we have been talking about some ICO uh, best practices the so, uh, but I don't know whether they're planning to provide any regulations very soon or not.
0: And something else I want to ask you about which you may not know entirely because you don't work there anymore is I did see that Kraken recently pulled out of Japan. Do you have any insight into how conditions there have changed for exchanges and why Kraken might have decided to close its operations in Japan?
3: Yeah, so I don't think I should speak for them because I no, no I'm not representing them anymore. But I think things things in Japan have become a little tighter and a tense after the hack hacking at a coin check which was uh, one of the biggest exchanges there and um, a huge amount of NAM coin was hacked at uh, the exchange and then since then things have become very become very more like I would think um like tense and tighter is that I know
0: Okay. And something else I want to ask about was that you tweeted about how when you started working in crypto in 2013, there were very few women. I was wondering if you have had any experiences in crypto that you think you wouldn't have
3: had if you were a man. Let's start there. Mm, Interesting. I actually did not really feel any huge disadvantage or advantage as a woman. It seems like other people did, but it is true. I just stated the fact that there, since uh, it was, I think someone was mentioning about women in blockchain and then trying to encourage more women in the space. And I do agree, it's always better to have diversity, whether it's a gender or a race, or um, like I think it's better to have diversity, to have different opinions, to have more balanced um, ideas. I don't think it necessarily that means that um we need to definitely have more women, but when I joined it was it, it is true that um uh, when I went to first Bitcoin conference back in twenty thirteen, May in two thousand thirteen in San Jose, that was there we Klagen had a couple of women but there I didn't we didn't see any women women in other, um, companies or at the event. So I felt awkward, um, that way for sure. Not that I had any like distant advantages or anything. So it is, it is great that we have more women because just, just because I believe in diversity
0: yeah and in your role as executive director of the Ethereum Foundation, you probably deal with a lot of men and probably men who don't often work with other women. Does that present any
3: challenge or or not? I personally do not feel any challenges because of that. I do believe that we'd love to have more diversity um in terms of the gender difference um gender balance but um No, I don't really have any difficulties, but also maybe because I was a um, teacher before. My mom, I think I'm used to, yeah, being with young gentlemen. (laughs) Or (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I think it's it's yeah. It's I don't you know they are very gentle and then very pure and also very passion oriented. Which, which is not just because they're a man, but yeah, I just feel fortunate to be with very smart, genuine people.
0: And do you have any ideas on how to get more women involved
3: in crypto? I guess we just have to inspire more women. Like we do have a couple of women in researchers and developers. So I think it's just to show that, um, they are working with us is. Inspiring, and then actually, I was asking um Xiaowei in the research group, like she's a researcher, um, she's a developer in in Taiwan. I was telling her to speak at more events in Asian countries where gender there is more gender gap, and then I I thought that would be inspiring for women uh, there to. Feel that, oh, they can also learn and then join the group on uh, an organization like the Ethereum Foundation.
0: Well, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Where can people learn more about you and get in
3: touch with you? Thank you very much. This was um, very, um, this was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: And where uh, do you have a Twitter handle oh, or anything?
3: Oh, I do have my Twitter handle, which is a little complicated, but it's me, M I, underbar, ayako, ayako. Okay, great. Well, thanks for coming on
0: Unchained. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Aya, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Frasher Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.